Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I am Will Davis, a good guy in a big city. And I'm Leah Richards, encouraging risky behaviour. These two things are both especially true, except the big city I'm in at the moment isn't the one that I'm usually in. I've been sent away on one of my weird work things. It keeps happening. You might remember the cancer roundup we did last year. It's one of those again. But rather than chatting just about science, which I have to do in my day job, we've got some science for you all about some really weird stuff. The first story in this episode picks up with where we left things off in the last episode, all of our Halloween special looking at fear. I do want to just say, before we properly get into this, I think it's quite charitable to suggest that Bristol's a big city rather than, like, a small to medium-sized one. It's an adequate city. Yeah, but it's it's compact. It's got a lot of suburbs. Ah, uh, does it, though? Yes. It takes up less space than Birmingham. Okay, that's because Birmingham just kind of keeps happening. It's easier to escape than London. London is a gravity well from which no light can ever hope to be free. It's less densely populated than Cairo or Tokyo or, you know, it's a, it's a small to medium-sized city. It's charitable calling it big. Those are both capital cities with a statistically remarkable population density. As English cities go, <laughs> Bristol is... it's nice. It's fine. It has balloons. I know, it's nice. I'm just saying it's not necessarily big on a global scale. You know what I'm glad is not big on a global scale? Is it spiders? It's spiders. I don't know how many other people will have watched that episode of Doctor Who the other night, but the day before, one of my friends was complaining about how this series of Doctor Who hadn't been scary enough, and then there were the giant spiders. So I, I hope she retracted that statement after that. Giant spiders, the size of a Volvo, skittering around a ballroom and up and down the corridors and trying to eat completely not Trump's face. That man specifically stated that he hated Donald Trump, so he's alright by me, apart from, you know, dumping loads of toxic waste in a mineshaft. <laughs> apart from that. Apart from that. It did really get me how the biggest spider was dying because she was too big to breathe, as if in our atmosphere that wouldn't happen when they got over a foot or so wide, which is why that's the limit on actual real-life spider size. Because they don't have lungs or a circulatory system in the way that we do, and it's not efficient enough to get oxygen to all their tissues. Someone who's more of a history-slash-biology buff can probably put a number to it better than me, but there was a time, once upon Earth's weird history, where giant spiders were totally possible and very much a thing because of a very oxygen-rich atmosphere, meaning that their spiracles could take in way more energy and support a really big body size. Yeah, which is also why we had the meter-wide dragonflies, which we discussed in a previous episode about how I think that would be really cool, and you think that would be terrifying. So this story that's all about fear... And fear of creepy-crawly things... ...comes to us from the University of Sussex, specifically some of the work led by Hugo Critchley, who is Chair of Psychiatry at Brighton and Sussex Medical School, and the principal investigator in this study, which found that if you scare people in time with their heartbeat, they get less scared. Traditional treatment for phobias is to gradually introduce the thing that you're scared of. So if you've gone in wanting to treat your arachnophobia, they might start out with drawings of spiders and move on to photographs of spiders, and eventually you might get comfortable enough with them to let a tarantula walk on your actual human flesh. 
Maybe. But this new means of trying to, I guess, trick your body into being ready for spiders in a kind of circadian way was based on previous research from Brighton and Sussex Medical School, who had seen that bodily arousal signals, which is just like activity within the body, that occurs with each individual heartbeat can change the emotional impact of potential threats. For example, during a heartbeat, a threat appears more severe to your own body. So, working backwards from that, if you show someone something that is scary in time with their heartbeat, can you take the edge off things? Which is what they did with computerized exposure therapy for spider phobia. I love the wording that they've got here of how the different groups of participants were shown the spiders. So one group represented in time with their heartbeats, another group they were presented in between heartbeats, a third control group saw spiders randomly in the therapy sessions. Oh, spider! I'm so glad you picked up on that because this is my favourite part of the press release as well. <laughs> Like, out of a generally interesting story of taking away from people's phobias due to just flashing spider, 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 spider. That's weird, that's odd, but it kind of works. But having just random spiders occurring throughout what ought to be a therapy session to get over spider phobia. Like, okay, and when did you first start to realise that you were afraid of spiders? Okay, and how is your relationship with your father? Uh, okay, okay. That's spider! <laughs> But, you know, it did show significant reduction in self-reported fear of spiders, anxiety levels, and physiological responses to being showed spiders in the individuals who were showing them during a heartbeat. And throwing it back to Hugo Critchley with a quote at the top of the press release here, many of us have phobias of one kind or another. It could be spiders or clowns or even types of food. Treatment usually involves exposing the person to the fear, but this can take a long time. Our work shows how we respond to our fears can depend on whether we see them in time with our heartbeats, or between heartbeats. Which makes me wonder, what would flash up on a screen in a kind of Hugo Critchley, Clockwork Orange-style phobia treatment way to help you get over whatever is spooking you in the middle of the night? Me, personally? I mean, we can start with you personally. We can throw it over to the audience if they have any ideas what would flash at them on a screen to scare them. I'm not sure how much exposure therapy with flashing images up can help with, like, fear of being a grown-up who takes responsibility for things. What, so just you have the heartbeat going, tum, 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 tum. Entropy, tum, tum, tum. Taxes, tum, tum, tum. <laughs> just, just the concept of having to be full-time employed until you die. <laughs> That's it. That's what scares me. Well, all of this talk of flashing lights trying to scare people is probably not putting them in a very comfortable mood. We should move on to something a little bit more relaxing. Or how about... Have you ever been in an actual real-life casino? You know, I don't think that I have. I don't think I have, but I've seen into some from the outside, and I've watched a bunch of CSI crime scene investigation, and they spend a lot of time in casinos. And it's loud, and there's a lot of lights going on. And a lot of jangling. How do you think that might affect somebody's decision making? Knowing what I do about casinos, the people who run them, and the psychology that goes into making people give you all of their money, they've probably thought long and hard about how to get people to give them all of their money. A lot of casinos in Vegas are designed to have no natural light, so you can't actually tell what time it is. The way that they will bring around lots of drinks, so people just kind of 
stay where they are, giving you all of their money, to the various layouts and designs and carpet patterns all designed to boggle and disorient. I'm sure someone, somewhere, perhaps even from the University of British Columbia, with research led by lead author Maria Cherkasova, has figured out that if you show people flashing lights and casino sounds, it might make them a little bit more risky. They had already established in earlier research that rats were more willing to take risks when food rewards were accompanied by flashing lights and jingles, so why not test if that works for humans as well? And yes, we are exactly as sophisticated as a rat. I think the important question here, the important modifier to the study is, are any of the people involved in the study near a crocodile? Because as has been previously <laughs> established, being near a crocodile will encourage risk-taking behaviours. And also, have they taken some cocaine? Because I'm pretty sure we've discussed that one as well. Yeah, it turns out there's lots of ways in which you can get people to give you all of their money. Threaten them with a crocodile. Give them drugs. Treat them like a rat and give them flashing lights. It's, it's actually a pretty simple way of going about your business. But that's just my take. We should probably leave it to Cherkasova to explain the actual work that they've done. And instead of just having the rats, they've got a hundred adults playing gambling games in a lab with some sensory feedback machines that see just how much the bells and whistles are affecting them. Turns out that showing them money and slot machine sounds that ding 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 can actually influence your decisions to make you more likely to gamble. Stick around, play some more, why don't you? And the study's senior author Catherine Rin Stanley notes that using eye tracker technology, we were able to see that people were paying less attention to information about the odds of winning on a particular gamble when money and casino jingles accompanied the wins. We also noted they showed greater pupil dilation, suggesting individuals were more aroused or engaged when winning outcomes were paired with sensory cues. And the more I think about it, this is just the marketing plan for the entire fast food industry. It's uh, remarkably similar, and that's all aimed at children. Yeah, get kids hooked on the nice, bright red and yellow of certain burger chains. Other fast food franchises are available. I'm enjoying this tremendously. That's a fun phrase. That's a happy jingle. That's a bright colour. I think I can go for some of this food. I will take the risk of what I know is almost certainly not good for my overall health on like a long-term schedule, but I'm going to do it this once. Why not? If we're talking about children, I don't think we can really hold them responsible for that. I don't think we can really suggest that they have that level of thought. It's more like, oh, bright colour. Tasty food? Food. Toy. Okay, so definitely down to the rat level then. Yeah, I mean, it's not like, oh, I want to eat this, but it has a very high fat and salt content, so maybe I won't. This cup of drink contains 11 spoonfuls of sugar, so it will rot my teeth. That doesn't seem like the people who are affected by gambling addiction in its various forms might be putting that much thought into things as well if they are caught in this trap. And Win Stanley does note at the end of the press release that while sound and light stimuli may seem harmless, we're now understanding that these cues may bias attention and encourage risky decision-making. So keep an eye out for that in your day-to-day -day life, I guess. See if there's any bright lights, flashing images, trying to make you do something that you normally wouldn't. If it's in time with your heartbeat, be very concerned. <laughs> oh yeah, let's just mash these two studies together and see what comes out. <laughs> if once a second you see a sign flashing up that says, feed the spiders, hand in the cage, give them your flesh. Yeah, that's definitely worth being very cautious around. The Large Science Collider has produced various, aren't they 
unexpected results. <laughs> the large science collider. I like that. Yeah, instead of instead of colliding particular particles, it collides different studies and Yeah, thought collider. Yeah, yeah. And then so out of this one we might get lights that flash messages in time with your heartbeat or we might get light up spiders <laughs> and yes both of those are potentially good results yes to both the dark side to this however might be a perfect time to the next story coming to us from the u.s army research laboratory where scientists have developed a computational model to quite accurately predict human behavior which is interesting research but scares the pants off of me. <laughs> now, this seems to be um, predicting the behaviour of an individual as part of a group. So there has been discussion in the past about like group dynamics and crowd movement patterns is a fruitful area of research, especially for people trying to design crowd control systems when they're building arenas and... We had that story not so long ago about using mosh pits as a model for that kind of human interaction. Yeah, and if anyone has seen any documentaries about civil engineering, you might have seen that sometimes putting an obstacle in the way of a doorway actually helps with the traffic flow through it. But the model that is being developed by the US Army Research Laboratory, under the title of Fractional Dynamics of Individuals in Complex Networks, the second paragraph of this paper says that they have exactly determined an individual's behaviour reduced to one equation. And that is some dystopian sci-fi phraseology if I ever heard it. What gets me is the bit about psychologists and sociologists having studied and debated how an individual's views and attitudes might change when they join an organisation and that this dynamic is interesting to the army. It might be at play in terrorist organisations and in how individuals become transformed during army training. Yeah, that's an unfortunate parallel to draw. Don't think it's one they would have intentionally drawn if they'd thought about it. Well, Drs. Bruce West and Malgazata Toelska, a postdoctoral researcher at the Army Research Laboratory, have been thinking about this for a while and they've been thinking about it very hard. Dr. West saying that he and Dr. Travalska developed and explored a network model for decision-making for a number of years, but recently it occurred to them to turn the question on its head, allow them to pursue what they say is the holy grail of social science for the army, which has been a way to predict the sensitivity of individuals to persuasion, propaganda, and outright deception. I am going to start screaming shortly. <laughs> It is mentioned later on how this might affect us in a more neutral sort of way. So um, an individual's behaviour might be quite random and undirected when they're isolated. This is specifically as part of the mathematical model that they're applying here. When they're part of a group, it, that behaviour develops in a way that might be much more adaptive to social cohesion and that it's a feature of humanity that we're a social species and therefore we are going to change our minds somewhat when we're exposed to other people's opinions. It does keep happening. Speaking of other opinions and other ideas, the basis for this computational model, the fractional calculus, is described as being in the past used to develop and applied to complex physical problems such as turbulence, 
the behavior of non-Newtonian fluids, and the relaxation of disturbances in the viscoelastic materials. But this is the first time that it's been applied to the description and interpretation of social and psychological dynamic phenomena. So, doing some maths with people's brains to figure out what they're going to do next. And who's come up with this? The US Army. Not to sound paranoid at all, but the screaming will resume presently. Hey, who knows? It might be all for the best. Now, while it might seem intimidating that the US Army has figured out how you're going to behave, don't worry too much about it, I guess, because as far as actual psychologists and sociologists are concerned, how we thought people behaved may not be quite the done deal that we thought it was, based on new research brought to us by the University of California, Santa Barbara, but which involves a fascinating insight into decades of study with the Tsumani people from Bolivia. This covers something which you might have heard people talking about in terms of diversity in science, and we've talked about, you know, having more diverse viewpoints in your organisation is a positive trait, will give you more resilience and more ideas, and just studying the same groups of people all the time doesn't give you actually a very full view of how the world is, funnily enough. So let's take as a case point human personality. It's kind of the holy grail for psychologists to figure out what people are like most of the time. Apparently the consensus among psychologists was that humans have five personality traits in varying degrees that can define the structure of who they are. Their openness, conscientiousness, agreeableness, extroversion, and neuroticism. On the other hand, having studied the Tsumani at home in the Bolivian Amazon, they found just two broad dimensions, prosociality and industriousness suggesting that those big five features aren't necessarily all that universal. So the anthropologist at UC Santa Barbara, Michael Gervin, who spent a long time working in the Tsumani culture and understanding what it is that makes who we are who we are, breaks down that over 90% of participants in studies published in the top developmental psychiatry journals hail from North America and Europe, or as has been termed apparently, Western-educated, industrialised, rich democracies. Weird. And it does say in the press release, this reliance on weird samples is not unique to developmental psychology, but is common to most subfields of psychology. And that represents less than a fifth of the world population, and almost certainly a far, far smaller proportion of all of the people who've lived on the Earth ever. And Gervin has some choice quotes throughout this press release. It's a really interesting read, and I recommend that you look into it. But I'll pick out just one or two here. He says that many areas of psychology, if not directly, then implicitly, generalize study findings as human universals. But if American students living in cities comprise our main study population, how can we generalize based on a tiny subset of humanity? And that the contrast of having these, quote, Big five social dimensions contrasted against the Tsumani's two, being social and working hard, which those are two very core dimensions to define human experience and like cutting down to what is the core of humanity is that we get along with each other and that we are capable of more through our teamwork to build and to engineer and to share in the product of our collaboration. Which is why it's always sad when you see people trying to actively not do those things. 
Oh yeah, because it's like social Darwinism or something. Like the Vikings, we should all live as the Vikings did. Except the Vikings left all of their women in charge of the money, had impeccable hygiene, and could sing and row and like do a lot of interesting things. Quite often settled down to farm, even in places that they'd just raided. Anyway, less about the Vikings, more about the Tsimani. As well as having the measures of personality, a second example that Gervin uses in this press release involves the health locus of control, that if you believe your future prospects are out of your hands, in the hands of destiny and fate, or are otherwise uncertain, you are more likely to focus on the present and to discount the future. As Gervin explains, if you think your days are numbered, you're not as likely to make your annual checkup a priority. Your choice not to seek routine medical care or prioritize a healthy lifestyle may be a rational response to living in a dangerous or unpredictable environment. But really the thing that Gervin is most at pains to point out is how and why psychologists particularly should be looking at wider ranges of people than the students in your undergrad class. And it does point out that it doesn't even have to involve lots of travel. It says there's plenty of diversity within the United States that's untapped. Most of it is just outside the ivory tower of academia. And a very, very direct line can be drawn between these psychological studies and the genetic studies that have made up a lot of modern biology. We were listening to the Why Aren't You Adopter Yet podcast when it was being recorded live in Bristol. They were doing some very interesting stuff about genetics and heritage and lineage. And what were the numbers they gave about 23andMe for their breakdown of white Western European compared to people of African descent and genetics? Yes, I think the starkest contrast was there was something like 60 samples for the whole of the Indian subcontinent compared to sort of 60,000 in Europe. So when they're actually looking at the ancestry breakdown, you get very specific figures for who you're similar to in Europe. So it'll say 20% Spain, 20% Central Europe, 20% Northern Europe, and then it might be 40% Sub-Saharan Africa, which is a vast geographical space with literally 10 times as much genetic diversity as the whole of the rest of the world. Just because... They've got very inconsistent sample sizes. It is always very important to remember where you aren't looking. It is, and the more you look in the places you haven't been looking, the more things you find. That goes for your personal life as well. I just looked under the sofa for the first time in weeks and found three glue sticks. Three? Yeah, I'm glad I looked. I'd been wondering what the hell I'd done with them. Well, I'll tell you what, we can get into almost literally our dirty laundry later, but for now we've got one more big chunky story to talk about with a big chunky city. And it's Miami where this research was done. The aspects of Florida which are kind of weird are not the point of this. The point is, is big city living eroding our instinct to be nice? Now the example they give at the top of this press release is probably something that you've experienced, dear listener at home. Would you tip your waitress if you knew that you would never return to that restaurant? Probably, because that's kind of how most of us are socialised. But what if you knew that the waitress would never know if you left a tip? Without the incentive of having her approval, would you still be generous? And the researchers, William McAuliffe, a PhD candidate in psychology and senior author, 
Michael McAuliffe, who is Professor of Psychology, say in their journal published in Nature Human Behavior that this instinct to be nice, even if we don't see the consequence of it, is suppressed, if not bred out of us, by living in such large cities with so many people between us and the actual consequences of our actions. And they did a little bit of laboratory testing on this, having participants playing three games requiring them to make decisions about investing money and sharing the windfalls with others in the room. But sitting at consoles with headphones, they weren't interacting with one another, making their decisions and collecting their winnings anonymously and privately. In fact, when they came back for a second round of testing, they were 20% less generous. McAuliffe says they realised what I do doesn't matter, it has no social consequences, no one's going to pat me on the back if I'm generous, so when they come back they don't act on that being nice, because they've learned that the rules don't apply in this game, and by extension, according to their research, outside of your social circle, you just lose the capacity to care. And I think it's possibly something that it's valuable to remember and to make a point of not doing. McCulloch says, I think what this study says isn't that generosity toward strangers is part of what humans evolved into, but instead that we evolved in a world where there weren't really strangers. We knew everybody and they know us and it would get back to somebody if you were unpleasant, whereas living in cities with millions of people, you can encounter a stranger and know you'll never see them again and feel like you can get away with treating them badly, and I would say it's probably quite an important thing if you want to think of yourself as a nice person to treat everyone as if you are going to meet them again. It really does explain an awful lot about the world of today, that people's capacity for empathy and just being decent is so greatly diminished by the idea that it doesn't matter because you're never going to see them again. Except it does matter, because you have the power to make someone's day better, or just prevent it from getting worse, and why would you not use that? Psychology lesson from Eureka Nerd. Face your fears at a regular interval, and be nice. Just be nice, or the army will come for you. If you have been affected by arachnophobia, or the US army, or people being rude to you in shops, then tell us all about it. Send us a message at EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. That's EurekaNerdcast at gmail.com. Unfortunately, this isn't like those action lines that they offer you at the end of like a particularly tense episode of EastEnders or whatever, so we won't be able to give you any resources back. But if you know the guy who did it, we can definitely show him a spider in like 60 beat per minute intervals. Yeah, something like that. It's like arachnophobia therapy, but in reverse. Can you make somebody scared by showing them spiders at irregular intervals? Probably you can. Is that what the control group was? Other ways of reaching out to us are on Twitter, where we're at Eureka Nerdcast. You can find us on Facebook, forward slash Eureka Nerd. But we've got one last story for you before we part ways. Near and dear to my heart, how couples handle banter. Now, I haven't actually read this one, so do you want to talk me through it? Do you promise not to laugh? Uh, no, I can't promise that because you're quite funny. So even if the content isn't, you might make it funny. Okay, that's unfortunate because people who are afraid of being laughed at are often less happy in their relationship compared to people who are living with a partner where they can handle laughter or being laughed at in a similar way. 
who are quite content in their relationship, according to research from Martin Luther University, Hallow-Wittenberg, published in the journal Research in Personality. Now, have they looked at all into the correlation between being afraid of being laughed at and overall having a more negative outlook or having anxieties, which might affect your relationships? Not in too much specific detail. They do say that people enjoy a partner with a sense of humour, that people who argue are often doing so over some fear of not getting along generally, and that in summary, that handling laughter and being laughed at in a similar way alone does not suffice to assess whether or not a relationship is a good one. I mean... Which is almost exactly the research statement they said they were answering. (laughs) But I'm glad they pointed it out, and I hope they will move on to look into some of those confounding factors, like someone might not like being laughed at because they're just overall insecure, and that can often be a problem in a relationship. Maybe those people should be sat down with an episode of The Office being played to them one frame at a time, every time their heart beats. Maybe? Maybe not. You know what? That sounds like another problem for another scientist. Thank you so much for joining us, and we will see you again next time on Eureka Nerd. But until then, that's bye-bye from me. And goodbye from me. (laughs) 